pray one more time. Father, we pray for your blessing on your precious word for the glory of Jesus. And we pray in his name, amen. Well, it makes all the difference in the world if the living Christ is actually real to us. So is the person of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is always with you a reality to you? Jesus is the Son of God. He was sent by God, the Heavenly Father, to earth. He came to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we deserve to die. So he died for our sins in our place. And then he rose from the dead, triumphant over death. Isn't that good news? And he also kept going up. He ascended into heaven. From heaven, he right now lives and reigns. And he is going to return to this earth one day in the future to judge the whole world in righteousness and to create a new world for all who trust in him. This is our gospel. And it is such good news. But here's the reality. Jesus Christ, the person, is not an idea. He's not a concept. He's not a myth. He's not distant. The reality is that this living one, Jesus, is really with us right now. That's the reality. And he will be with you tomorrow morning as you go about your lives at home, at work, at school. Therefore, here's the therefore, okay? Let's learn to live in light of the reality of Christ. Let's know in the, de- the depth of our souls that we live our lives, each one of us, We live our lives constantly before the face of God. And one of the areas that this outlook, this perspective on life will have an effect is our work lives, in the workplace. The the relationships that we experience as employers and as employees, as bosses and subordinates. So that's where we're headed. Talk about the workplace and the employer-employee relationships. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, in order to draw out some principles for the workplace. But before we do that, let's look at a little bit of context again. Last week, Dan Leeper did such an excellent job of preaching on the parent-child relationship. If you didn't hear that sermon, go back and listen to it. It was so helpful. Um, But he talked about some of the context surrounding Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. And we've seen that in chapter 5, verse 21. Look at it there in your Bible. We're going to be staring at our Bibles this morning. So Ephesians 5, 21, that idea of submitting to one another is a controlling idea for this whole section. So there's an attitude of deference that should mark the Christian community as a whole. So as a Christian, one of my main responsibilities is to consider your 
interests, your needs, your desires above my own. Your good is my first priority. And this, this attitude, this mindset, this perspective should affect how married couples treat each other, how parents and children relate. And then today, how masters and slaves or employers and employees relate to one another. But, okay, so submitting to one another, this is foundational. But there's an even more foundational truth underneath that one. And it's, look at it there in 518, chapter 5, verse 18. And these, how many words? Six words. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you underline or mark in your Bible, this is, these are six words to mark. Because these words are so core and central for the book of Ephesians and for this passage in particular. I think of Ephesians 5.18 like the engine of a powerful car. That engine, if it's broken, or if a piston is off, it's just not going to, the car isn't going to run. It's going to sit in your driveway. 5.18 is that 500 horsepower engine for our lives. Be filled with the Holy Spirit is the power that drives our right relationships. And if the Spirit is missing from our lives, we will not be able to be the husbands, wives, parents, children, employers, employees that God is calling us to be. So do you want to be the husband God's calling you to be? Be filled with the Spirit. You want to be the wife that God is calling you to be? Be filled with the Spirit. You want to be the child God is calling you to be? Be filled with the Spirit. You want to be the parent that God is calling you to be? Be filled with the Spirit. You want to be the employer or boss that God, that God is calling you to be? Be filled with the Spirit. You want to be the employee that God is calling you to be, the follower that God is calling you to be? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Thursday afternoon, I'm sitting in my office at Crossway, and thinking about this passage, and this question came to mind. Joe, what would it look like for you to always be going about your life and work in the fullness of the Holy Spirit? How would that change what you do today and how you do it? So fill your name in the blank for not the person sitting next to you, but you how would your work life look different if you went about it constantly in the fullness of the Holy Spirit? There is power for living the life that God has called you to live at work. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. It's a tough passage because it's about masters and slaves. So I want to be very clear up front that the Bible's teaching, the Bible's teaching from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, is that people are created equal. All people created equal in the image of God. Man and woman, husband and wife, child and parent, young and old, the janitor and the CEO, all have equal value and worth before God. Because every human being on planet Earth has been created by the same God and resembles Him. 
So that's a truth and a reality that we need to deeply embrace. It's a scriptural teaching. But then I ask the question, how can we affirm this biblical truth and at the same time preach a passage on masters and slaves? Let's think about that for a minute. When we hear that word slave or slavery, our minds often imagine the modern practice of slavery that has happened over the last few hundred years. And the practice of slavery over the last few hundred years is sinful and evil. To steal someone from their homeland and to force them to work normally under harsh, demeaning, or abusive conditions purely for selfish reasons is simply wrong, wicked, and deeply unjust. And we praise God for men like William Wilberforce, don't we? Who worked and worked and worked and worked to bring down slavery. And we praise God for others in our day today who are working to bring down other forms of slavery like what happens in sex trafficking. But here's the thing. We need to be careful not to make a one-for-one connection between slavery as it was practiced in Paul's day and modern slavery. Now, that said... Slavery in Paul's day wasn't always perfectly fair or just. Often it was practiced in a way that mistreated, used, or even abused slaves. Other times, the practice was more similar to our modern-day employer and employee relationships. And so that's the concrete application that we'll be drawing out today. It was essentially a a work-for-hire or work-for-pay type of agreement in the context of authority and submission. And, 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 And Paul, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't seek to undermine the system or the practice of slavery here. Even if some masters were cruel and even if the practice itself was not always ideal. Now, why? Why wouldn't the Apostle Paul attack the system? A couple thoughts. First of all, Paul was not in a position culturally or politically to overthrow the practice of slavery. And secondly, probably more importantly, Paul is like just 100% streamlined in this goal of equipping Christians to live for Christ individually in the situation that they find themselves, even if it's really challenging and hard and difficult. And that's Paul's main goal here. Individual Christian, you find yourself where you find yourself right now. And that may be very hard, but where you find yourself, here's how you can live for Christ. And that's the instruction that we'll get today from the Apostle Paul. So finally, we're actually going to jump in now to the passage. All of that was context. Let's get into Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, and look at three parts of these verses for slaves and masters. First, the commands... Second, the way to obey the commands. And third, the reason to obey the commands. All right, first the commands for slaves. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. It's very simple. Bondservants or slaves are to obey their masters. Very simple. A slave's master is 
an authority in his life. He's not the only authority, but he has an authority. And so bondservants are called to obey. And this principle is going to be very important for how we apply this later. And notice that there aren't any qualifications or exceptions. It's not like obey if you have a nice master, something like that. No, it's just simply obey. Now, of course, there are exceptions if the master commands a slave to do something that the heavenly master would forbid, then the slave's allegiance goes first to the heavenly master. But we're really good at taking the exceptions and using them as justifications for not following the rule. And so I want to focus us in on the simplicity of this very straightforward command here. Bond servants, obey. Obey your earthly masters. For masters, what's the command for them? Chapter 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Now, that's a little bit more difficult. What is the Apostle Paul commanding here? What is the same that masters are to do to slaves? Well, if we look back at verses 6 and 8, this doing word is used two more times. Okay, so it says, masters, do the same to them. Look in your Bibles, verse 6 and verse 8, the same doing word is used two more times. Slaves are to do the will of God, verse 6, and they are to do good. Do the will of God, do good. So just as slaves are to do God's will by doing good, so masters are to do God's will by doing good. In other words, their aim should be to do good and not harm to those who are underneath them. And this teaching would have been radical for masters in that day because the standard was to treat slaves like property. And you know what that would result in. And so for Paul to say, actually, masters, you're to be looking out for the good of your slaves is radical teaching for masters. Christian masters are to be out for the good, not of themselves, but of their slaves. Wow. That is radical for masters. Okay, so those are the commands. Secondly, the way to obey the commands, the manner of obedience for, mas- for slaves and masters. Look again at Ephesians 6, and I'll read verses 5 through 7. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So there's a ton in here that we could draw out. We'll do a little bit bit of that later. But I want to just point out one vital thing from this passage for slaves. What is vitally important for slaves is that they make the connection between obeying their earthly masters and serving Christ himself. And this emphasis is repeatedly driven home in this passage. It says, obey as you would Christ. It says, obey as bondservants of Christ. It says, rendering service as to the Lord and not to 
man. You get the point? He says it over and over. What the Apostle Paul is saying is this. Slaves, your ultimate obedience is to Christ. He's in charge. He's real. He's with you. And when you obey your earthly master with sincerity and respect, you are ultimately serving the Lord. And this, if you can imagine, slaves, it's estimated that about one-third of the population in Ephesus uh, were slaves. And so if you can imagine being a slave in this situation, and this letter is being read to you, and you have a, a cruel master, and you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, and you're going to need to do what? Obey. Obey him. And where do you get the strength to do this day after day after day after day? Here it is in this passage. You are serving the Lord ultimately. And you know what? He is a good master. And therefore, you can enter in tomorrow morning to that difficult, difficult circumstance and know that ultimately you're serving the Lord. And what motivation and strength that this would have brought for slaves. What about for masters? How should they obey the command to do good to their slaves? Well, look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. You see, many masters would have used this coercive threatening tactics as a means of making their slaves obey them. It would have been like, if you don't do this, then this. And it would have been threats along those lines. Can you imagine as a slave living under that domination? But Christian masters are to be different, refusing to threaten their slaves to accomplish their goals. Okay, thirdly, the reason to obey the commands for slaves. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. Ephesians 6, 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. See, the Lord is going to graciously repay whatever good anyone does, whether bondservant or free. There's a reward for slaves who cheerfully and consistently obey their masters. And even though they might not get that reward from their earthly masters, they can be confident that the Lord sees everything and he will reward them for the good that they do, small or great. And this should motivate their obedience to their earthly masters. What about for masters? What, what should ground or, or motivate their obedience to treat their slaves well? Look at verse 9 again. It says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Masters will get no special favor from the heavenly master because they're free and not slaves. Masters themselves are slaves, actually, to a greater master. And they have a master in heaven to whom they will one day answer. And knowing this should really affect and impact 
how masters treat their slaves. That's Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And what I want to do now is just take a step back and zero in on six beautiful words in verse 9. So look at Ephesians 6, verse 9. There are these six beautiful words there where it says, There is no partiality with him. You see, Jesus is our total master. We are called by Jesus to submit every area of our lives to him. Nothing withheld. Everything yielded to him without reservation and with joy. Jesus calls the shots. What he says goes. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. And yet there is no partiality with him. And this is just a beautiful combination of characteristics. Total authority and no partiality. 100% rule that Jesus has and zero favoritism. And the mixing of these two qualities in Christ calls for nothing less than our worship of him. See, we often think of powerful and influential people as having their favorites, their in-crowd, their clique. And the small and unimportant and those who can't do anything for them are looked down upon or cast aside, not so with Christ. Why doesn't our King Jesus play favorites? Well, here's why. Because he doesn't need anything. The earthly master or king or president can offer Christ just as much as the lowly servant, namely nothing. Nothing. And so the ground is perfectly level before our Lord. Perfectly level. And all who are his own, who belong to him, Jesus has chosen to love with an everlasting love by his free, undeserved grace. Here's the truth about our king, Jesus, in the words of the Puritan Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks said this, The Lord Jesus has as great and as large an interest in the weakest saints as he has in the strongest. Let that sink in. Our Lord is as much concerned with the little guy as with the powerful and important. He cares as deeply about the life of the weak and unimportant as about the life of the wealthy and influential and everywhere in between. Now, maybe this morning you come in and you say, the Lord has gifted me with leadership capabilities and over the years he's brought significant influence into my life and that's where the Lord has brought me. And maybe in the back of your mind you think, does the Lord love me? Or does he actually, are his favorites the weak and needy? Or those who feel that deeply? 
Maybe you say, well, because I have power and influence and wealth, God looks at me with suspicion or worse, condemnation. Not so. He shows no partiality. He does not favor the small over the great. So powerful, influential leader who is in this room this morning, who has trusted in Christ, God loves you deeply and tenderly and freely and forever. But maybe you say, well, because I'm small and weak and not influential, God doesn't want me on his team or in his family. Not so. He shows no partiality. He does not favor the great over the small. You who view yourself as insignificant or unworthy, God loves you. God loves you deeply and tenderly and freely and forever. This is our Lord. He shows no partiality. He has 100% authority. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet he loves each one equally with an undying love. So how should we live in the workplace in light of this great king? How do we respond to the truths of Ephesians 6, 5 through 9? I have six applications for the workplace. We're going to blaze through them. So Put on your belt and we'll seatbelt and we'll fly through this, okay? Number one, applications for the workplace. In the workplace, give up living to please people. Work to honor and please the Lord. Isn't it a freeing thing to live for the glory of one? So let's give up the silly eye service thing. Let's throw away the work hard when my boss is looking thing. Let's abandon the doing our best work only when our annual review is approaching thing. Let's live in the joy of rendering service to our ultimate king by doing our very best in the work he has given us to do. And we'll shine as lights as Christians in our workplaces as we do that. Number two, embrace your identity as servant of Christ. Embrace your identity as servant of Christ. You may have a job where 10, 20, 50, 100, 500 people are underneath you. Remember afresh that your core identity is servant of Jesus. You may have a job where you're at the very bottom, entry level, and you've been there for years. Remember afresh that you are honored royalty. You are a servant of the king. That's what this passage gives us. Number three, don't abuse your authority if you are a manager or a boss. Don't let the mission of the organization Become your idol so that you manipulate and threaten and bully and cut corners and whatever else to get your way and to get your raise and to get your promotion and to get your mission accomplished. Don't let the feeling of power and of people doing what you say get in your veins so that you become puffed up. Instead, experience, listen, the better pleasure of using your God-given authority to bless others. What a, what a switch that is. And for the advancement of your company's broader mission and ultimately for the glory 
of God. This passage makes clear that those in authority, those in authority will one day have to answer to God himself for how they have treated those under them. That's a sobering thought. But that's the truth of Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Number four, obey your boss with as much thoughtfulness and cheerfulness as you can muster. That's hard sometimes. But strive to be the best follower at work that you possibly can be. How much attention has been given to leadership over the past 20 to 30 years? Books and conferences and workshops on leadership, leadership, leadership. But where is all the writing and speaking on followership? What if we focused our attention on learning what it looks like to be an excellent follower? Isn't this Christ's first call on our lives. Follow me. And it serves as such a bright witness when Christians are known for being respectful and obedient and willing and kind and hardworking and consistent and thoughtful as followers, as employees, whether or not the boss is watching. Here's the attitude. At the end of the day, Whatever you say, boss, we'll do. We're at your service. That's the Christian attitude in the workplace. Now, it doesn't mean we're not honest or sometimes push back, but at the end of the day, we're at your service, boss. This is hard. But even if your boss is unpleasant, unreasonable, or even cruel, the calling of this passage is simple and straightforward. It's just coming right out of Scripture Obedience, submission. And if you work in an oppressive work environment, it's not wrong to change jobs. Jot down 1 Corinthians 7.21. Check it out. But while you have your current job, ask the Holy Spirit. Tomorrow morning, wake up, ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you, to show respect, and to work diligently. Number five, View your work as doing good and doing the will of God himself. Are you a carpenter or electrician or a plumber? Make the connection between the work that you go to do tomorrow morning and doing good to others for the glory of God. Make that connection. Okay? Are you a teacher? Make the connection. Be intentional to make the connection between the work that you do And the good you're doing as a teacher for your students, for the glory of God. Are you in the business world? Make the connection. Be intentional. Make the connection between the work you're doing and the good you're doing for others for the glory of God. As we do this, I believe we can experience what Eric Little famously said when he said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And we can experience that in our work. We can feel his pleasure. When I'm building something, I feel his pleasure. When I'm leading in a meeting, I feel God's pleasure. When I'm sitting at my computer trying to figure out some difficult or complex problem, I feel his pleasure. We can experience that in our workplaces, in the work that God has called us to do. Number six, 
Anticipate the reward you will receive back from the Lord for the good you do at work. Uh, You may hate your job right now. And actually, a sermon talking about the workplace is hard for you to listen to because you dread, actually right now, you dread waking up tomorrow morning and going to work. And I've, I've experienced that, not in my current work, but in the past, I have deeply felt that. I know what it's like, and it is not fun. And so what is, what's the encouragement from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 for you this morning? And, and maybe, maybe you're not a follower of Christ yet. You don't believe in Jesus, but you're hardworking your difficult job is going to drive you to Jesus. And it's going to be the thing that awakens you to, I need help. And you're going to start praying to God for his help and even for his salvation. But if you're in that, if you're in that really challenging work environment, here's the encouragement from Ephesians 6. Let this be one motivation for you tomorrow and this week. Listen, Ephesians 6. Whatever good you do in your job, you will receive reward back from the Lord. That's real. That's true. Whatever good you do, whether you think of it as being a big, significant thing or as a small, insignificant thing, you will receive back from the Lord. Let's let's hold the Lord to his promises. This is a promise of Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to what John MacArthur says, commenting on this verse. God's credits and rewards are always dependable and always appropriate. An employer may not appreciate or even be aware of the good work done, perhaps because he's indifferent or because someone else takes credit for what is done, but God knows. And God rewards. No good thing done in his name and for his glory can pass his notice or fail to receive his blessing. So let that motivate you now as you think about the week ahead in your work to keep plowing ahead for Christ, who is your ultimate Lord. Jesus is a Lord who shows no partiality. He's always with us. He's a real living Savior. So let's go into this week ahead in the power of the Holy Spirit for the good, doing our work for the good of others and for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would so empower us by your Holy Spirit that we'd be able to do our work for your glory, even if we're in a challenging workplace, that you would strengthen us to feel your pleasure in the work that we do and that you would be honored by our work. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.